Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Good morning, everyone. My name is Elaine Carey. I am chair of the history department at St. John's University in Queens, New York. And I am also the vice president for the teaching division of the AJ for today. Today is my last day of a three-year term, and it is a real pleasure to be here. The, the next vice president will be uh, Liz Leifelt, who is um, a d the dean of the Honors College at Cleveland State University. And another new member we have that has rotated on is Jeff Bowman, who's at Kenyon College. But I want to thank all of you for attending the AJ and College Board K-12 Educators Workshop Teaching the Long Civil Rights Movement. Um, just as a reminder today that uh, we have uh, other sessions that are going on and we also have a networking event later today in the afternoon for K-12 teachers as well as a reception this evening. So I invite you to stay at the conference for the entire day and please attend uh, the networking events and the reception later. Uh, the HA and the College Board promote best practices in K-12 education, historical knowledge, and thinking by giving students and teachers the opportunity to work together to enhance excellent communication <laughs> skills, emphatic and critical thinking through historical inquiry, as well as providing programs, conferences, institutes, and workshops. I would like to introduce um, Lawrence Sharap from a, the director of AP programs to come up and talk a little bit about AP and the College Board. Thanks so much, Elaine. I'll keep it really brief. Um, I'm Lawrence Charup. I'm actually the, the director um, for history and social studies programs um, at the uh, College Board, the AP program, in what we call the Curriculum and Content Development Group. And uh, that means that we work together to um, uh, try to be in charge of issues related to curriculum, instruction, professional development, and assessment related to the AP program. And in that capacity, um, we're really pleased to be able to have this be our second year of supporting this workshop. Um, at the uh, AHA annual conference. Um, we really feel that uh, the missions of the organizations are very much aligned and that we desperately want to uh, help uh, students to be able to gain a, a mastery of the skills and, and practices and, and content they're going to need to be able to succeed in college. Um, and in that sense, um, we feel that the, uh, the AHA, um, and in particular its uh, emphasis on uh, developing students' historical thinking skills and the tuning project and in, in efforts such as this one, um, is, really, uh, is really doing wonderful things. So we're very pleased to be able to support it. I just wanted to uh, briefly mention that in the back we have some handouts. There's one describing the APUS history course, giving an overview of the course. If uh, you're not familiar with it, you want to know a little bit about it. Um, both APUS history and AP European history have now been redesigned to stress the development of historical thinking skills um, while integrated with uh, rigorous uh, content. Um, and AP World History is going to be following that soon. 
Um, I also wanted to mention we have a couple of wonderful new programs available for teachers called AP Insight, um, which is based on developing a, a robust set of activities, strategies, and assessments to develop uh, the teaching of the AP course. Um, so I have a handout there talking about um, the AP Insight. And then finally, if any of you are interested in the experience of becoming an AP reader, um, going and, uh, pr going and uh, grading uh, uh, Papers, uh, grading essays, I'm sorry, um, for a week in Louisville in the beginning of June. It doesn't sound like fun, but people who do it love it. Um, and they say that it's, it's a lot of fun. So um, um, we are always looking for new readers to, to help to uh, score essays and become uh, part of the program. Um, I'll be here for most of the, uh, the workshop, and I'm happy to talk to any of you about AP and, and what we do. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Lawrence. Um, and as he mentioned, that we have uh, lots of materials in the back as well as um, materials that have been distributed. So just briefly, the AHA is the largest professional organization of historians, and we are a diverse group. You will find historians in government, business, diplomacy, banking, the military, higher education, uh, the usual places where we wander, museums, archives, and libraries. But the greatest place that you will find the majority of historians is in K through 12 education. And I am sure all of us have had that experience where we tell somebody we're a history teacher. Um, I'm routinely, uh, re I re remember this frequently on planes where I say, I'm a history teacher and it's usually an exuberant, I love history or the grumble and they turn away and I know they're gonna nap, I've always hated history. And the former we know, that exuberant response, is usually due to a teacher who inspired us and really promoted that love of learning and the love of history. Although I did not study history as an undergraduate, started from pre-med to filmmaking to international relations, um, I know that I am a historian today because of Miss Jewel Cartledge, my 11th grade U.S. history teacher. She was not from Florida where I finished uh, high school, neither was I. She was a graduate of Spelman College who was active in the civil rights movement here in Georgia as well as beyond. And she made history come alive for me and countless students at Woodham High School. She came, she was recruited to teach at that high school because it was the first high school in the city that was built to be an integrated high school, years before I arrived. Um, she held an institutional memory and history of a changing city, school, region, and nation. We, her students, benefited from her experience, her love of learning, her genteel, if not highly combative, debate style, and her enduring patience. Like me, it is primary and secondary school teachers that people are first exposed to history, historical thinking, and historical knowledge. History and historical education are essential to civic engagement and citizenship, and its importance to relate the past to the present. And today we have a workshop that addresses much of these issues. So I would like to introduce our panelists. 
um, and then we can kick off the workshop. Carol Anderson is a professor of African American Studies and History at Emory University. She is the author of Eyes Off the Prize, The United Nations and the African American Struggle for Human Rights, as well as the, uh, bourgeois, the Bourgeois Radicals, the NAACP, and the Struggle for Colonial Liberation. She has received numerous grants for promoting her research, as well as projects, as well as many teaching awards. Brenda Santos is the Director of History, Curriculum, and Instruction for Achievement First 15 Middle and High Schools in Connecticut and New York. And she has began teaching um, AP US History in 2000 in the Bronx and has been training and coaching teachers since 2006. She has taught both at Connecticut State College and Yale Universities. Oh, excuse me, Connecticut State University and Yale University. And she is a member of the teaching division for the AHA Council. Sean Robertson is the lead middle school teacher at Harlem Academy. He has written and developed history curriculum as well as written his own primary source textbooks, Junior Historian's Field Manual. He is also the co-advisor to the eighth grade students and faculty advisor for the Lower School Service and Entrepreneurial Club. He is also a Red Sox fan in New York. So he's oh. a very brave, brave man. So please join me in welcoming our presenters and I welcome you to the workshop. And good morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Oh yeah, that's better like it, okay. And so I'm going to start off on teaching doing the kind of brief overview, spattering in some documents on this thing called the long civil rights movement. Now, when, I'm, when I teach my civil rights movement class, I actually start off with Chris Rock. Isn't that where everybody starts with civil rights? <laughs> and I start, because I've got these eager students in my class, and, and, and I realize that they have gleaned a lot of their knowledge from Coca-Cola commercials in the film Selma. And I say, Chris Rock tells this joke. He is 17, getting ready to graduate, and his father's like, boy, you're going to college. And Chris is like, I'm going to college. And he's like, yes, boy, you're going to college. He's like, I'm going to college. What am I going to do? What am I going to major? What am I going to? He's like, well, you know, I know what? I'm black. I'll take black history. And so he's sitting in his first black history class. And the professor says, who was the man who had a dream? Chris. Martin Luther King. The professor says, well, yes, that's right. And Chris is like, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. The professor says, who? was the man who led the Montgomery, but, but Martin Luther King. Why, Chris, absolutely, yes. And Chris is like feeling it. I mean, he's just like, yow. And then the professor said, who was the woman who refused? Chris. You sure it was a woman? Martina Luther King. <laughs> and necessary because in, in larger society, so much of the civil rights movement has been reduced to Martin Luther King that we lose 
all of the resonance, all of the mobilization, all of the nuances, all of the organizing, because we've got Martin Luther King. And so part of what we're going to do here is decenter a lot of that. I don't think we might even only have one picture of King up here. Oh, that's some serious decentering. <laughs> and then what I'm also going to decenter is, whoa, not yet. There we go. I, I, you know, this worked really well on the small screen, so I'm going to actually kind of talk through, going to do what I don't normally like to do, but just to talk through what's on here. Because if your eyes are like mine, which are not eyes of an 18-year-old, yeah, you can't see that. I mean, we're just going to own it. <laughs> so this long civil rights movement, I mean, it's really sexy when you say that, isn't it? Because it, it says that there's something new here. And in, in this, this term has gained powerful resonance in the historical community, among historians talking about this long civil rights movement. But there is a great article called The Long Movement as Vampire, hence Twilight, as because of temporal and spatial fallacies in recent black freedom studies. And it's by Sundiata Chajua and Clarence Lang. And what they argue, uh, do I need to stay with the microphone? Good, because I, I, I have to move. Um, and so what they're arguing in here is that what happens like a vampire with the long civil rights movement is that it doesn't have time, it doesn't have place, it doesn't differentiate, there's no development over, you know, there's, there's nothing that historically grounds this, that it makes it seem like this thing that was the civil rights movement is just what was happening prior to and afterwards. That is all part and parcel of the same doggone thing. And I'm like, okay, so folks were using Gandhian principles of nonviolence in 1865 or in 1930 even. They were, in fact, mobilizing in the churches for marches and sit-ins in 1930. And when you begin to ask those kinds of questions, then you realize that the long civil rights movement isn't holding and cohering together as well as it sounds like when you've got that wonderful long, well, you know, the long civil rights movement. And folks just throw that term around a lot. <coughs> but what we're really talking about here is a black freedom struggle. And that there are different phases within this black freedom struggle. And in those phases, there are these key elements, those elements that deal with, for instance, uh, citizenship rights. These are these ongoing long-term battles, the right to vote, the right to due process in a court of law, the right to equal access. And so we're going to to, and so the, part, the other part that I do then is that so I explain to my students that in order to understand why we have to have a civil rights movement in the middle of the 20th century, after we have defeated the Nazis, 
is to understand what didn't happen after the Civil War. And so I take my, I start my civil rights movement class, in fact, in Reconstruction. And how can we do Reconstruction without Andrew Johnson? <laughs> and and, and, and I'm, as I tell my students, I'm really upfront about where I am. You know, when I was younger, I used to have a great poker face. Now it just shows. I mean, it's all there. And so I just own it. Andrew Johnson. And so Andrew Johnson, as we all know, is the president who came in after Lincoln was assassinated. And he had his own vision of what this new United States would look like. And what it was going to look like was one where you know, okay, so we're gonna to have to figure out how to get the South back into the Union. But, you know, they've been, they've been punished enough. They really have. And so what we really need to do is, okay, we'll do the Wade Davis bill thingy where half of the eligible voters have to sign off that they're gonna be loyal to the US. And so I look at that going, okay, so we got half, we're like, man, I want you to die. Okay, so half will have to be loyal. And they have to agree to the 13th Amendment. What's missing? 14th and 15th. <laughs> <I didn't stop. laughs> so second. what's missing in the president's, president's vision of what a new, improved, viable democracy in the United States looks like? To free people. To free people. What do you do with four million freed people? Well, Johnson was like, and this is my issue, why? As long as we get the southern states back in, and so one of the first things, as you know, that he does is that he begins to provide amnesty to the Confederate leadership. And that amnesty, because when you read through their stuff, as you, you know, they thought they were going to be tried and hung as traitors. That's what they really expected was going to happen to them, and it didn't. Instead, they got amnesty and they regained power. And in that regaining of power, because as they, they, they talked about, you know, we were so desolate and disconsolate after the war that we thought that, you know, we would have done whatever the North wanted us to do. But then when Johnson made it clear that this was a white man's government and that there was no role for the free people in it, oh, 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 it's on. And one of the ways it became on were the black codes. In your packet, That first document, I know it's in because the real document is like something like this. And so trying to take this down to this is like, but so I've got a chunk of it here. The black codes, in fact, was a way to re-inscribe slavery by another name. It required the free people to sign labor contracts 
at the beginning of the year, saying, you know, I agree to work from the entire year, and, you know, you don't have to, let me back up. What strikes me most about the black codes are how they violate the basic laws of capitalism. One of the basic laws of capitalism says that as labor, you can take your labor to the employer who will provide you the best benefits, the best salary, the best working conditions. Isn't that sweet? Mm -hmm. And I mean, you think about it, isn't that what we do? I mean, think about how many times we're hitting what monster.com, job.com, or you know, looking at the ads because if it's not working right in, how many, okay, how many of you have updated resumes? <laughs> okay. And why? Maybe other opportunities out there. Other opportunities out there. Yes. Now imagine, what school district you work with? Uh, New York City. We'll just say New York City. You knew, in the New York City school district, you sign on and say that they pay you 46 cents an hour because you didn't have any option to go anywhere else. <laughs> and say that you have to work seven days a week. Now say that the Princeton School District is paying $40 an hour. You can't go. The black coats basically were a way to reinscribe slavery. So you, what you see here is a contract, a labor contract, signed by, it says, we the colored men do hereby abide by the contract that we are to labor for Perkins from morning until night, six days in each week, from the first day of January, 1866, to the 31st day of December, 1866. At any work they or their agents may require of us. This is a contract in 1866. The Black Codes. The Black Codes define African Americans who refuse to sign one of these contracts as vagrant, which meant then that you could be arrested and put on the auction block to have your labor bid for by one of these plantation owners, mine owners, lumber mill owners. Slavery by another name. Johnson saw absolutely nothing wrong with this. Nothing wrong with this. As you know, there were Congress came back and said, come on, man. <laughs> you know, we've got to re-up on the Freedmen's Bureau. Only 3% of the freed people are literate. And so we've got to build schools. Now we know that, 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 that they started building schools themselves, but we need to step in here and do something too. And, and, and you know, and we at least got to have something about citizenship because what's happening in the South is, is mass murder, they called it a slow motion genocide. They didn't use that term then, a, a historian. 
um, from Harvard has used that term. A slow motion genocide was happening in the South at this time with the slaughter. As you read through like the works of Carl Schurz as he's making his travels into the Deep South, he's like, there are women whose ears are cut off. They're, they've been scalped, their bodies in the ditches, <coughs> they're rotting corpses everywhere. We, and, and Congress is like, we gotta do something. We get to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which Johnson says, uh-uh. And he vetoes that, and he vetoes the Freedmen Bureau Bill in some of the most vociferous terms. <clears throat> Congress comes back with the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And so what you, you know what you're getting, of course, here is what they call the brief forms version of what is usually a semester long thing. <laughs> so the Enforcement Act, Civil Rights Act, citizenship. Civil Rights Act of 1866 defines as citizens anyone born on the soil of the United States of America, except Native Americans. But if you're born here, you are a citizen with all of the rights, duties, and privileges that citizenship provides. The Enforcement Act of 1870, dealt with going after the Ku Klux Klan and that kind of privatized terror that was raining down on black people. The Force Acts gave, the, the Enforcement Act gave the federal government <coughs> the power and the right to go after domestic terrorists. The Force Acts of 1875, the Force Acts of 1875 dealt with the right to have um, access to equal accommodations, that you could not be denied service, say, in a hotel or at a restaurant. And of course, there was the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery and saying we shall not have anything that leads to these badges of servitude. It's a key clause in there. These badges of servitude. The 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment embeds citizenship into the Constitution. <clears throat> because what Congress was afraid of was that, you know, it's really easy for a law to be overturned. It doesn't take too much to, you get a reconfiguration in Congress and a law that you thought was rock solid all of a sudden is on the chopping block. They were like, let's embed this thing in the Constitution and And then the 15th Amendment, the right to vote. Because what also became clear is that as long as the Southern politicians did not have to pay attention to the freed people, to the black people in their areas, then they could act with impunity, these politicians could. But if they had to be responsive to the needs and concerns of their full constituency, then you're going to have a very different kind of democracy. You've got to admit, that's sweet. When you think about what Congress has put together here, it took some doing. There's lots of negotiating, as we know. 
But what they have created here really looks like a strong foundation. So what happened? And lots of things happened. And, and I won't deal with them all, but I'm just going to deal with the U.S. Supreme Court. Can I do the face again? <laughs> and, and, and I'm from Ohio, but I, I, so I've, I've just come to, to Atlanta in 2009, but I've picked up some southern terms. The Supreme Court, bless their hearts. <laughs> in the U.S. Supreme Court, slaughterhouse cases of 1873. You know, that was a case where you had, there were these butcher shops in New Orleans. And they're all over the place with all of the nasty stuff that butcher shops bring. And so the city said, oh, we've got to do better. And, and, and passed a law to confine butcher shops to a certain area of the city. And they had to have the city's you know, authorization. The only city authorized butcher shops could operate in this area. The butchers took the city of New Orleans to court, saying that their rights had been violated. Their, 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 their 14th Amendment rights had been violated. What the court came up with in the slaughterhouse cases said, one, those federal, the feds can only deal with federal rights. And federal rights are like the writ of habeas corpus. You know, so if, if you get snatched somewhere, that the government really does have to produce you. But when it comes to just regular old rights, only the state can enforce those rights. Begin to see what's happening here? In the slaughterhouse cases, the first piece that you're getting is saying that the federal government can only enforce a very small, <coughs> sliver, narrow band of rights. The states take care of everything else. Minor v. Happerset, 1874. That dealt with a woman who was trying to exercise her right to vote in Missouri. Supreme Court came back and said, the right to vote is not a federal right. It is not a right of citizenship. The right to vote, I, I know it seems illogical, doesn't it? <laughs> and and I'm, because her face is just priceless right now. There was that brow furrow thing, the <laughs> that the right to vote is really um, the state's handle it, you have, you have no right to it as a, as a citizen. What? And I, I do that, I do, I, I make these Scooby-Doo sounds and clap. <laughs> <laughs> U.S. v. Reese, 1875. In this case, a black man, um, I can't remember where this was. I want to say Virginia, West Virginia, I can't remember the name of it. But he went to pay his poll tax. And, you know, the poll tax is where you have to pay a fee, a tax, in order to be able to vote. And so he went to pay his poll tax. <laughs> and you're like, uh-uh, <laughs> you don't want my money, right? And so she won't take my money. The tax collector will not take my money. So I then go over to vote. 
And you ask me, where, where's my receipt for my poll tax? Ask me. Where's your receipt? I tried to pay it. I really did. Can I vote? But I tried to pay it. This part of the city told me that they would not take my money. Now you're telling me what? I tried to pay. Does this sound like you're at the DMV? <laughs> I tried to pay. Yes, yes. I tried to pay. So this looks really simple. If you have government entities that require you to pay a poll tax, and then the government entity refuses to accept your payment for the poll tax, what does this look like? Disfranchisement. It looks like this. It looks like it. It smells like it. It walks like it. It talks like it. Listen, if it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck. It talks like a duck. It's a duck. Except when you're the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court said, mm, no, no, in fact, there's been no disfranchisement here. All the 15th Amendment means is that no government entity can deliberately target a racial group to disfranchise them. And that's not what happened here. Isn't that sweet? Now, if you were one of those nefarious old Confederates, and you were thinking about how you were going to reconstruct your system, this is helping, isn't it? Because you're thinking, OK, all I've got to say is I don't have to say black. I've just got to construct the system in a way that systematically denies. So, no, so as you know from the poll tax, the, the poll tax became so arcane. You pay it on the third day of the fourth month, on those months that are divided by six but can't be divided by nine. On the fifth year of the eighth day, down by the creek near the holler between 12 and 1201. Now, Except on those years. And so I, one of the things I do with my students, I, when, I, when I taught at the University of Missouri, I worked with a man who, and, and is cumulative, who helped his grandfather work his way through all of the poll tax lingo to help his grandfather pay his poll tax so his grandfather could finally vote in the 1960s. So this stuff is like in real lived memory. And the poll tax is deadly. That poll tax is lethal. And that's what's going to happen when we get to Williams. Um, Crookshank, USB Crookshank, 1876. What happened there was in Colfax, Louisiana. Um, there was a hotly contested election. And it was really clear that the white supremacists were coming. They, they didn't like the results of this election, so they just figured they were going to install their own government. Black folks went, no, not today, son, and took on, over the courthouse to basically install the duly elected government. There was a massacre of the first magnitude. Somewhere between 100 and 280 African Americans were slaughtered in the Colfax Massacre. The government, the feds, went after the folks who did that slaughtering, one of them being a man named Crookshank, using 
the Enforcement Acts, 1870. Supreme Court ruled that the Enforcement Act was unconstitutional, that really the only violence that the federal government had the right to step in and prosecute were, were, was violence committed by the state, not by private actors. And so private entities like the Ku Klux Klan could not have a federal statute banning their terror. Only the state, if there was some state statute that might be able, but this Enforcement Act, unconstitutional. What this did was it basically released mass murderers. And it provided no kind of federal protection for the violence that was raining down on black people from the Klan and other vigilante groups. Hall v. DeCure, D-E-C-U-I-R, 1877. Supreme Court was busy. I'm kidding, they're busy. This Hall v. DeCure, what that said was that a state cannot prohibit racial segregation. So that a state, can, a state cannot prohibit racial segregation. The civil rights cases of 1883, see I'm trying to do this from memory. Civil rights cases of 1883 said that the force acts that, that said that you could not have discrimination in public accommodations, like uh, restaurants, hotels, it said that is unconstitutional. That in fact, you could. So a state cannot ban racial segregation, but it can absolutely go for it, which was Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, which is what we know as the granddaddy. Because that's the thing that sets Jim Crow fully in motion, separate but equal. Uh, one of the justices, in his opinion, says, you know, when Plessy, Homer Plessy talks about that uh, Louisiana's law violates the 13th Amendment's badges of servitude, it's not so, not at all. Because the law itself does not seem to subscribe, you know, ascribe any kind of inferiority. And so if black folks think it makes them inferior, it's because black folks think they're inferior is basically the, the language coming out of that decision. Has, has any, you've read the Plessy decision? Isn't it, isn't it, you know, it's harrowing sometimes, isn't it? You're reading and you're going, oh, or as my students would say, <laughs> OMG, right? <laughs> then there's Williams v. Mississippi. We often don't get to these sometimes because we hit Plessy and like, woo! We get Williams v. Mississippi, 1898. The court's been really busy here. In Williams v. Mississippi, it dealt with the poll tax. Mississippi, you know, Mississippi, in the Mississippi plan, set up the rise of Jim Crow, really just did the blueprint. And part of that was a really hardcore poll tax. 
In Williams v. Mississippi with the poll tax, the Mississippi Supreme Court said, ooh, it's, like, it's really clear what happened here. Because the Constitution says you really can't like specifically say, we don't want black people to vote. So you can't write a statute that says we don't want black people to vote. So what the state convention did was, instead of being really explicit about it, they defined what the characteristics of the black population in Mississippi were, and then wrote the statute to meet those characteristics. So this is in the Supreme Court decision, the US Supreme Court decision of, of Williams v. Mississippi. Based on the fact that the Mississippi Supreme Court said, this really is, we know what you're doing here. And this, the Mississippi Supreme Court said, but we're cool with it. Can't make this stuff up. And, and the US Supreme Court said, we're cool with it. Williams v. Mississippi allows the poll tax to stay in place. To understand the power of the poll tax is to understand that 1942, we're at war, the good war, Studs Terkel would tell us, the good war. In, 19, in the 1942 midterm election, in the seven poll tax states, only 3% of the eligible population voted. The power of the poll tax was so enormous. From its arcane rules to its cumulative effect, the way, you know, when you're thinking about it, when you're impoverished, paying a tax that's accumulating year after year after year after year as you're trying to figure out these rules about <laughs> where you're supposed to pay your tax, 3%. Because it's also important to understand that while this is targeted at black folks, it's destroying poor whites as well. <laughs> and begin to think about what, 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 and so what I do in my class, when I, when I taught at Missouri and on an American history survey, and I had about 300 students in there. And, and it's the entry level class. And invariably, you'd have a handful of seniors, because this was a required, a handful of seniors who had waited till that last minute to get this required course. And so I would say, OK, I don't have any seniors in here. And, and there'd be, I was like, uh, 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 come on, come on. And I, you know, about four or five would raise their hand in this class of 300. And I'd say, great. I only have to be responsive to you. What do you want? What do you need? You don't want to take the exam? Done. You want an A? Yeah. <laughs> Done. Now, the rest of the freshmen, right, they're looking going, that's not fair. I was like, welcome, baby. <laughs> because when you only have to be responsible to a very narrow band of your constituency, and pull all of your resources into that constituency, the rest of you can rot because it has absolutely no effect on my job. And that was a way for me to bring home to my students the power of the poll tax. Now, the seniors loved it. They're like, oh, yeah, this, this is cool. But you know, sociologically, that's kind of how it works. And then finally, you remember, we've got Plessy v. Ferguson that says separate but equal. Here we've got Cummings v. Richmond, 1899, three years after Plessy. What
what happens there is that there was a black school system and a white school system. But Richmond was having financial difficulties. And so Richmond shut down the black school system and kept the white school system going. Black folks went to court. They were like, okay, you want this separate but equal, you gotta deliver. And shutting down, because you're saying you're having financial difficulties, and shutting down the black school system, that's not equal. The Supreme Court said, yes it is. And said, under financial exigency, financial uh, separate but equal does not have to play, uh, have to play, be in play. Yeah. So, so all of this is happening. You see all of this is happening in the 19th century. So this is when I talk about that long black freedom struggle and why we have to have a civil rights movement in the middle of the 20th because of this mess here. This is some powerful mess. This is some USDA grade A prime beef, as my friend from Texas would say, mess. <laughs> this is mess. The result was a level of vulnerability, political, economic vulnerability. In the rise of Jim Crow, you have lynching because you have black folks fighting for their rights. And you've got this system saying you will get back as close to slavery as we can take you. And in that clash, you have the rise of lynching in a way that is just not America's finest hour. The average is one every other day for a decade in the 1890s. I'm gonna think about that. Every other day for a decade. By the time we get to the 1920s, we have about a thousand lynchings a decade. 90% uh, of those lynchings were in five southern states. 90% of all of the lynchings in the nation were in five southern states. What we have here in your packet is this document from the Atlanta race riot of 1906. And so it, and in this, you know, so it is somebody who is at Clark Atlanta, who's at, it's at Clark University, let me get back in the temporal moment, <laughs> who's at Clark University, and the, the series of letters written home to mother, right? Dear mom, things are, you know, I'm, uh, the classes are going okay, we're doing this, we're doing that. Oh, by the way, <coughs> the mob is out killing black folk left and right. So you get this kind of innocuous, almost benign kind of letter, and then in the middle of these letters are these harrowing descriptions. Let me read this one. Really, last night was one of the most scary nights that we have ever spent here. The streets were wild with the mob all day yesterday. And some thought that they would come out here at night. But I really was not afraid. We stayed at home and I slept with my gun under my bed. Wow. 
I wasn't afraid because I'm at college sleeping with my gun under my bed. Now, we, we know with this Atlanta race riot, it was based on um, political machinations, a wild, crazy uh, press that's talking about the massive rape of white women by black men, fueled by these two guys who were um, Hope Smith, and I'm blanking on the other guy's name, which, Tom well, hmm? um, it wasn't Tom Watson, it was the other guy running for governor. But this is what happens to me <coughs> this early in the morning, so. <laughs> um, and you just have these, these stories about folks just being beaten on the streets, yanked off of rail cars and begin to think about what that means for your students. Because we're in an era now where when we hear the word riot, we basically think of black folks burning up some part of where they live, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. But prior to the 1960s, riots, were actually whites rampaging against blacks. And again, how disruptive that becomes for students to begin to think through how that happens, why that happens. And as they begin to read through like newspaper accounts that talk about, or, or those firsthand accounts that talk about. Oh, I was gonna say it was Clark Cowell. That's it. Tom, Tom Watson was the guy who um, was kind of fanning the flame. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Clark Howe from Howe Mill Road. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, and you, it's something, you know, it's like when somebody gives you that thing, it's like, oh, yeah, now I remember. I see it right there on the page. Um, and so how they, uh, where was I? Changing definition of riots after the 60s. Ch those changes. So imagine your students reading those reports and reading how the police see the violence happening and allow it to happen. How, again, when we're talking about what democracy looks like, what it feels like, and how people have very different narratives and histories and memories coming through, what these primary sources do is to open that world up to them. Now, oh, I love this. So in the midst of the, the, the Atlanta race riot, and this is the next document after the Clark Atlanta ones. This is a man writing and he says, we must in some way bridle the ownership of firearms by the malicious and ignorant Negro. It's an exception to not find one, two, or three firearms in each cabin. And the lives of our best citizens has no protection. We have 25 or 50 Negroes to one white man. Now this is written during the Atlanta race riot where blacks are arming themselves to protect themselves from being you know, pulled out of their homes, burned out of their homes, beaten with, with iron pipes in the middle of the street. And you have a white man writing, we need protection. Can you figure out how to get the guns away from black folk? I'm thinking that maybe, as you read down here, maybe if we put a tax on their firearms. So again, playing to the kind of intense poverty that many blacks have. 
And so, you know, taxing, taxing my right to vote. Now, taxing firearms. Now, one of the things, so when we think about the civil rights movement, we often think about, so, so I'm agreeing, we think about it sometimes in terms of nonviolence, right? This is the term we've heard so many times. It was a nonviolent movement. One of the latest waves of research that scholars are doing right now is to talk about the role of guns in the nonviolent civil rights movement. You gotta love this. And so Charles Cobb has just written this great book, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, which is a direct quote, right? And also a professor out of Georgia State, Akinyele Umoja wrote, We Will Shoot Back. Armed resistance in the Mississippi Freedom Movement. And, and as you can see, I've got cobs up here. So as you're thinking about you know, helping your students really, again, disrupt these narratives that we have. Because what they're arguing here is that armed resistance has been a long-term, ongoing struggle in the black community. It has been about the only thing that has kept these riots and these lynchings from just happening carte blanche. And so to somehow think that using nonviolence solely is going to, to be absolutely, totally transformative, uh-uh. They're talking about these things happening coterminously. And so that when you have, for instance, nonviolent um, marchers in Mississippi or in Louisiana fighting for the right to vote, marching behind them on the sides, in the windows, you've got like the deacons of defense. Yes? So, the very first night I spent in the state of Mississippi, I'm staying with Reverend McCullough out in Madison County. Mm -hmm. And in the bedroom, there is a rifle in the corner. And I asked Reverend McCullough, you know, isn't this a nonviolent movement? And Reverend McCullough says, if those Ku Kluxers come around here, I'm going to get them before they get me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They, and, and, and again, you see how disruptive that is? of that narrative? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, because there's the reality that when you are in these areas where you are the enemy, you may have lived there forever, your parents have lived there forever, your grandparents have lived there forever, but you don't belong here. Mm. How do you protect your life and limb and your babies? When you don't have the police. Because that's also one of the things that I work with my students on understanding. I, I, I you know, I, I said, well, why did they just go to the police? Well, why did they just write to their? Well, you know, why did they? You know, so we have in these civics lessons all of these things that you do in a democracy to be heard. But if that system is so totally fundamentally broken, boom, what do you do? And it's to get my students in that moment to think about how do you take on an oppressive system? Yes. You mentioned uh, five 
a southern states that accounted for? Was one of I'm, them Arkansas? It was not Arkansas. And you know, well, when you ask, when you, and I knew, and I said, the moment that thing comes <coughs> out of my mouth, um, Mississippi, well, Georgia, Georgia, Alabama, the only Louisiana, South Carolina was not in that list. Which was, I'm telling you, I was shocked because, I mean, I was shocked because when you look at a lot of statistics, you know, like Georgia, as you know, Georgia says, thank God for Mississippi. Yeah. Alabama says that too. Alabama says that too, right? Thank God for Mississippi. Mississippi makes it easy. You know, you're just like, oh, thank you, Mississippi. But when you look at a, a lot of data, you see that South Carolina in so many key fundamental ways is worse than Mississippi. And that's where you're like, ooh, ooh, yeah. ooh. And so South Carolina is really doing a thank God for Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah, the reason why I asked that was because my grandfather left Arkansas to go to Oklahoma. And one of the reasons was because of the violence. Yes. Yes. In Texas. Texas? Yeah, I, I just looked up like some statistics. Okay. And it looks Florida, like Texas Alabama, was Alabama, really Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, 1877, North and South Carolina, Virginia, until 1882. And again, from 1902 with this new constitution, and Texas in 1902, yeah. the Texas poll tax required otherwise eligible voters to pay to register to vote. And, and of course, uh, and Georgia had a we, we all know about the, about the Tulsa yes. uh, 1990. And he, he left approximately 10 years or maybe even 15 years before that just uh, to go to Beggs, Oklahoma, among other places, and ended up in Sepulveda, Oklahoma, which is right outside of uh, Tulsa. OK, so my people are from Oklahoma. Oklahoma. And, 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 so, and, and so one of the things that, and so I'm getting ready to digress just for a minute, but one of the things is that you begin to, when, when, when black folks are sitting around, you begin to find that there are these lynching stories in these families. And, and consistently, and so you begin to think about what that does in terms of a community memory. Um, my, my uncle, uh, a white man had accused him of stealing from a little local little store. And my uncle is one of those, you, you don't lie on him. He doesn't care who you are. And the white man, you know, my uncle said, you lying. And the white man hit him. My uncle delivered a USDA grade A prime beef, opened up a can of whoop ass on that man. Ooh. In 1930, Oklahoma, mm. Mm. the lynch mob was coming. Granddaddy threw my uncle in the back of the truck, covered him with hay, and took off driving. And they drove all the way to Michigan. That's how a wing of the family ended up in Michigan. <laughs> and so and so you begin to think about what these stories do and so I think one of the other pieces to begin to capture these kinds of narratives you know I when my students began talking to their parents 
They start finding out some really incredible things about their families that all of a sudden become these game changers. Oops, I'm running. I mean, one of the other big pieces, and it's one of the things when I talk about disrupting the narrative <coughs> and using primary sources to do so, is that when we think about the civil rights movement, we really think of it as a minister-based movement, right? Mm -hmm. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend Abernathy, Reverend, I love me some Reverend Fred, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, you know, we think of Reverend Hosea Williams. We, the massive insurgency and the organizing in the black community comes from black veterans out of World War II. Because you think about it, <coughs> You have just taken on Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> you have just taken on Adolf Hitler. You have just, and I mean, and this is a war that is built against Aryan supremacy. This is a war that is built for democracy on the Atlantic Charter. Freedom from fear, freedom from want. And you have fought, and you have fought hard. You have had to deal with the craziness in a Jim Crow military. You have fought a two-front war. And you come back to the United States of America, the arsenal of democracy, who is now the leader of the free world as you're moving into the Cold War. And what? The massive discrimination against black folks was intense. The vaunted GI Bill, was basically whites only, for all intents and purposes. Because if you're a black veteran in Mississippi, you are not going to be able to take your GI Bill and go to Ole Miss. Just as James Meredith in the 1960s. And the lynching against black veterans was just Intense. In Monroe, Georgia, you have a quadruple lynching. Um, Minden, Louisiana, John Jones is blowtorched and dismembered. Isaac Woodward, not lynched, but had his eyes gouged out. Yeah. Black veterans, black veterans, black veterans. So here, you've got this wonderful document that says, you know, and what they're demanding are, are black police on the Atlanta police force. Take a stand against police brutality and injustice. This is 1946. Now think about when we're in the middle of Black Lives Matter right now. And we're talking about police brutality and injustice. To begin to help our students see those connections. The average Negro veteran has given about three years of his life to fight Hitler and returns to find Hitlerism, racial bigotry, and white supremacy. The veterans weren't taking it. One of the things that Taylor Branch talks about in Parting the Waters is that when these veterans were sitting back in those churches and those ministers were teaching the old stuff about you just wait for yours in the by and by, those veterans were getting up and walking out, I'm not waiting. And the ministers began to change their message. Onward, Christian soldiers. There is a wonderful book that deals with the role of black 
veterans, World War II veterans in the Civil Rights Movement. It's by Christopher Parker. He's a professor out of the University of Washington. And it's called Fighting for Democracy. And then I'm going to speed it up. So we've got the traditional civil rights movement stuff that we know, Freedom Rides. Here, I just love this letter. This is, you know, in the Freedom Rides, one of the things they did was they moved them into the, uh, they took in Mississippi, they, uh, with a deal cut between Bobby Kennedy and James O. Eastland, they just moved the Freedom Riders into Parchment Prison, maximum security. And this letter, unfortunately, is not in your packet, but it is online. And, it, and it's a, um, um, her mother has written to the, the warden saying, is my baby all right? She needs her medicine. I'm really concerned about my baby girl. She's a minor. And he says, I noticed that you state as a mother of a minor that you want to be notified in case of any emergency. What I cannot understand is why, as a mother, you permitted a minor white girl to gang up with a bunch of Negro bucks and white hoodlums to ramble over this country with the express purpose of violating the laws of certain states and attempting to incite acts of violence. Hmm. Now, can you imagine? That's from the warden. Again, to, because part of what also I think is really important to see is how you have whites involved in the movement and what they're having to deal with as well. Resistance to equal accommodations, and I want to, I'm just going to do hotel, um, I love this one. There is resistance, because part of what we have to understand is resistance. Um, one of my colleagues loves to do oral histories, but she says she has, sometimes she has difficulty doing civil rights oral histories, because everybody marched with Martin Luther King. <laughs> and, and so she has to say, well, if everybody marched with Martin Luther King, why do we have a movement? Because every white has marched with Martin Luther King. Every black person has marched with Martin Luther King. Except when you really look at the movement, it is only a sliver. Like in, those, the, the, in, in Birmingham, a large segment of the black community was so against King coming in there, they were like, you need to stay home. Now, that's not the narrative you normally get, but that's how it went down. In this one, the heart of Atlanta Motel, which was at 255 Cortland Street. Where's 255 Cortland in Atlanta? Boom! Right across the street. Where the Hilton is currently is the heart of Atlanta, was the heart of Atlanta Motel, owned by a man named Morton Rolleston. And in 1962, he writes to his customers, we want to advise you that we have never accepted a Negro guest at this motel, that we have not agreed with anyone to accept Negro guests now or in the future, and that it is our considered and firm policy that we will not accept Negro guests at this motel at any time. I was, feel, I was hearing Dr. Seuss. I, I do not like them with ham. I do not like them with can, you know, and I do not like them saying, like, no, 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 no. Or Amy Winehouse, either one. <laughs> now, what is fascinating about this guy is that I only had this letter, and that letter was, is in the Emory archives. It's a great letter. But then what I did was I said, who is this? 
Well, I said, who is this fool? And then I started Googling. And up comes all of this stuff. One, he was the first to launch a Supreme Court challenge to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So the Civil Rights Act was passed in July 2nd. He filed suit on July 18th. Because the Civil Rights Act says, no, you cannot discriminate in interstate commerce. If you have a hotel or a motel, that is interstate commerce. You cannot discriminate and say that black people cannot stay at your hotel. He was like, yes, I can. No, that's my right. And so by Google, I started coming up with these newspapers. And what he uses in his Supreme Court case is the 1875 Crookshank decision that says that the federal government has no right over private stuff. So for your students, you can begin to see how the things that are happening in the 1960s, the mid-1960s, are tying back into what's going, what happened in Reconstruction. So it gives them that wonderful, powerful arc. <coughs> and let me see if I can get this. As I, I love this, right? Can <coughs> you see that? Morton Rolston, that's, that's the uh, owner of the, Heart of Atlanta Motel, thy will not, thy shall not, thy cannot, versus who? Who? No, versus Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. So we have now gone from Rolleston in the 1960s to Tyler Perry in 2007. Same Tyler Perry? Like our Tyler Perry? Medea. Yes! Yes! I mean, so this, is this, am I, so this is that hunt that just happened by me coursing through from this primary source document going, who is this guy? And boom! And so what this case is, so what this case is, is that Rolleston was not a very good attorney. And he cost one of his clients a lot of money. She sued. She died before the lawsuit came through, but her estate won the judgment. Before he had to pay the judgment, he set up a living trust and put all of his assets in the living trust. So he was like, I don't have any money. And so her estate, because the beauty of an estate is that they can keep coming at you. <laughs> you know, they don't, they, they don't, they're not dependent upon you breathing. And so they kept coming after him and coming after him and coming after him. Finally, they got it. And what they got was his family home on Paces Ferry Road. That his, his, that the beautiful mansion that he had lived in for 40 years. Well, now that they've got the mansion, they still don't have any money, they just got the mansion. So they sold the mansion to Tyler Perry for $9 million. First thing Tyler Perry did was tear down the mansion. <laughs> you know, karma is a sweet, sweet thing, isn't she? <laughs> and tore down the mansion. Rolleston sued Tyler Perry. <coughs> you tore down my house. You didn't have a right to tear down my house. You don't have a right to my land. That's my house. 
And so watching your students think through how these life arcs work. There's also online um, the initial case where he's um, of, of Rolleston going before the Supreme Court in 1964. I am seeking a permanent injunction against the United States and the Attorney General of the United States at that time, Mr. Kennedy. <laughs> That's his voice. From enforcing that act against the appellant. The government filed not only an answer but a counterclaim. And in the counterclaim, I asked for an injunction on the provisions of the Civil Rights Act against the appellant. And that's in the OYEZ.org. And so there, your students can actually hear uh, Rolleston going before the U.S. Supreme Court arguing that the U.S. Civil, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 violates his rights and is unconstitutional. So OYEZ.org and just, you know, so what I did was I did a type in um, Heart of Atlanta Motel versus U.S. or Heart of Atlanta Motel U.S. Supreme Court and boom, the OYEZ, O-Y-E-Z popped up and it has those oral arguments which is so cool. So hearing his voice, I mean, it just adds to that flavor of it. Okay, let me get back to here. Okay, and quickly, Voting Rights Act and the struggle continues because also part of what that last document does is you know, often we, we bound the civil rights movement and after 1965 and the Voting Rights Act, it was all over, it was all good. I mean, I read Richard Nixon's memoirs and that's what he said. <laughs> so it must be true. <laughs> um, and, meow. And, and so, but one of the things that is clear is that the struggle continues. Here you have SCLC launching a massive march for voting rights in 1982, 17 years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And so this helps our students begin to, to get out of those tight bounds, but also begin to, to see that there are these consistent themes coursing through. And I'm gonna stop there, I'm sorry I ran over, but thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. Um, I wanted to mention too that we we do have a CEU letter. I forgot to mention that earlier, um, and for for all of you for at the end of the workshop. And um, now I want to introduce Brenda, who will talk a little bit more just about how um, the rest of the morning will go. Great, thank you. Um, so thank you so much, Carol. Uh, wasn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to draw your attention to one thing before I transition into the next part, and that's at the very back of this packet. There's a really useful outline of all the documents that are within it. Um, so if you're wondering about, you know, how is this document in the archives? What is the what is the the name of this document? Or where does it come from? There's some sourcing material in the last couple of pages, which I know. You want your students to see that sourcing material when they see those documents, and you do too in your planning. So um, first I want to thank um, Carol and also Gabrielle Dudley at the um, archives at Emory University. They put together this wonderful packet for you. 
Um, I know it took me just about a millisecond to think about when I saw this shiny thing, uh, how I was going to use this with students and how teachers I work with um, were gonna use this with students in their classrooms. Um, in our next portion of this session, what we're gonna do is dig into the documents. First as thinkers, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, first as scholars ourselves, um, and then as um, classroom practitioners thinking about how this is going to, uh, how we're gonna translate this to, into classroom practice and execution. So um, before we dig in though, uh, some of you have already noticed that there's food in the back of the room uh, and there's coffee outside of the room. So congratulations to those of you. I was looking at you like, please help me over here. Uh, no one saw. So um, take five minutes to go and get some refreshments, but please, please do come back. We want to talk to you about these documents and we want to talk to you about how to use them with students. Thanks. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.